when we talk about worshiping God, really worshiping God in the vast majority of our lives is not so much about what we do in public, though it is that, but but really what it comes down to is a heart condition before the Lord. That's really what worshiping God comes down to in our life. It's, it's not more normally about these large public moments. Normally it's about these, these little decisions we make in private. These little decisions we make when nobody else is watching or few are watching. These little internal heart postures that we make away from ourselves and towards the Lord. And in the Bible, one word that describes that is servanthood. Where we choose to turn away from self and towards God in the posture of a servant. To be faithful to serve is really the heart's cry of every Christian. That's what we want to talk about this morning. What does it mean to be faithful to serve? What does it mean to reach the end of our days and hear that commendation from our Lord and Master that we all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. My children love VeggieTales. And if, if you don't, yes, let's root for VeggieTales too, absolutely. They're probably from Texas, so that's what we should root for them. I, I, if you don't know VeggieTales, you know, you really need to get into the goodness of this. This is vegetables, animated vegetables, telling Bible stories. And if you have children, they'll tell the Bible stories better than you will. So you need to, you know, get in on this. They have like 98 uh, VeggieTale episodes. But there's this one episode uh, that I've, I've heard too many times now. But it's amazing when you're watching a story about veggies and, and the experience happens where, where you begin to tear up because of the truth of what they're saying. And then you're immediately embarrassed by that. I'm, I'm crying at a talking tomato. This is, this is awkward. <laughs> A cucumber is, is breaking my heart right now. So th- this is what will happen when you watch VeggieTales. But there's a particular episode. They're retelling the story of Gideon. And Gideon in this you know, retelling is a cucumber. And there's a, a, a squash or something that comes. And he's an angel. And he's trying to encourage and inspire Gideon like the angel does in, in the book of Judges. To move towards the purpose of the Lord for his life. And Gideon is discouraged. He's wondering why he has to, to take on this task that the angel has given to him. And so the little cucumber says that he's concerned. And he thought perhaps the angel was going to give him sort of like a, a well done, good and faithful servant. Not to give him this challenge. And then this little gourd angel says something that just struck me as so simply profound. He said, if you want to hear well done, you're going to have to do. If you want to hear well done, you're going to have to do. If you want to hear well done, good and faithful servant, you are going to have to serve. How do we do that? Serving's hard. I don't like serving. Well, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, the Apostle John helps us learn how to serve. He gives us this story 
all about Jesus, but having this implication for us of what does it mean for us to serve. So turn your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. We want to try to answer this question, what does it mean to serve? How do we get from where we are right now to that final commendation, well done, good and faithful servant? How do we get there? Well, John's going to help us as he describes this story in his gospel in chapter 13. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we'll pray and then we'll jump in. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand? Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to ask you for supernatural illumination right now. Lord, this story is probably familiar to many of us. I pray you would peel away the familiarity. 
pray you would take us to that supper. I pray that you would place us, as it were, in that culture and allow the shocking indignity of this moment to bathe our hearts in wonder at you. Open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Serve like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. That's the culminating command at the end of this passage. You notice there in verse 14, after this story, Jesus kind of lands on this final application. As you've seen me do, you do to one another. Serve like Jesus. I've washed your feet, now you wash one another's feet. Serve like Jesus. We're called to be faithful to serve, but not just to serve based on our own definition, not just to serve in any method we choose, not just to serve as we would deem it service, but to serve in a way that reflects this service. That reflects this Savior. We're supposed to serve like Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not just well done in doing whatever you find to do, whatever you choose to do, whatever I want to do, whatever seems good in the moment to do. It's to do the things that we see Him doing. To serve like Jesus. At the same time, overwhelmingly simple and impossible in our own strength. Like most biblical commands, incredibly simple, not very complex, impossible. Serve like Jesus. How do we do that? How in the world, if, if, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you wash, how, how do we do that in our daily lives? How do we do that as, as musicians, as ministers? How do we do that when we're playing or singing or serving or showing up on Sunday? What does it look like to be like him? Well, John helps us. I think he gives us three steps on the way to that final day of commendation. Three, three categories that we can use to move us from wherever we are right now forward in imitating his example. The first is this, watch Jesus. How do we serve like Jesus? Well, the first thing we do is watch him. I have a little two-year-old son who is basically joy to me straight from heaven. And he sometimes will suddenly, spontaneously want to do something. And I'll, I'll look at him and I'm wondering, why is he doing this? He'll, he'll suddenly want to brush his teeth for no reason. He's a little kid. I mean, you know, kids don't like brushing their teeth. He, all of a sudden, he wants to brush his teeth. All of a sudden, he wants to, you know, do something, fix his hair. All of a sudden, he wants to, you know, nod while he prays in a certain way. And I wonder, why, why is he doing that? And then I'll realize, oh, he, I was just doing that. He was watching me. And it's this overwhelming sense of joy that there's this little person that for some strange reason, he just, he, he wants to watch me. And then watching, he wants to do, he, he just, he's watching my every move, even little inconsequential things that I do. How do we, how do we serve like Jesus without first watching Jesus? If I can just make a recommendation. If you want to be faithful to serve, the place to begin is to watch Jesus. Watch him. Watch him in the Gospels. Watch him in, in what he does. Watch him in what he says. Watch him in what he chooses to do. Go to passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 53 that describe his ministry. Watch him 
Watch him and meditate on him. Meditate on him until you marvel at him. Marvel at him until you worship him. Worship him until you can't help but serve like him. Watch him. Now I want to give you six words. You can think of them as as lenses through which you can watch Jesus in this passage. Six words. Watching Jesus so that we can serve like him. And the first word is this. Suffering. Suffering. The context of this passage is the suffering of Jesus. Look down at your passage. uh, Verse 1. It says it's the feast of Passover. Which obviously provides incredible metaphorical context of suffering. As the lambs are being sacrificed in anticipation of the great lamb who is about to be sacrificed. But in addition to that, Jesus knows that his hours, as there, had come to depart out of the world to the Father. And this, as you know, this is not a mere transition to paradise. Jesus is not going to be lifted up like Elijah in the chariot. He's not going to just walk right into heaven like Enoch. No, not for Jesus. For Jesus, who is more perfect than either of those other two men, Jesus' transition is going to be one filled with suffering and brutal agony and pain and the departure of his fellowship with his father. So this hour that he's talking about here, though it is an hour of glory, is in the more immediate future an hour of agony. Jesus is sitting down to a meal knowing that agony is right out that door. Now, think about this. When you have some terrible thing that's about to happen in your life, doesn't it affect everything else? Like some terrible thing's going to happen tomorrow, which in our you know, definition of terrible, that might be like you have to mow your lawn or you know, some really tragic suffering. But it just ruins your whole day. And, and, and you're short-tempered. I, I am. I'm short-tempered. Why are you short-tempered? Well, I don't know. It's probably mowing the lawn tomorrow. <laughs> it just depresses you, doesn't it? You have some chores to do, some big project at work. Add to that when there's real suffering in your life. Pain and difficulty. Conflict. Maybe physical challenges. If you're like me, often suffering produces self-centeredness or complaining, not servanthood. Look at what Jesus does. Note the contrast. When the hour had come to depart, he rises from supper. Jesus sees the coming suffering and the context of suffering as no escape or excuse from his calling to serve. And there has never been a greater experience of suffering than what Jesus was going into. When we contrast this with our tendency to excuse mere things like convenience, inconvenience. I mean, if you're on a worship team, I've been on a worship team for years. It's all kinds of things that create complaining. Oh, man, the sound team is late again. Can I please get my headset? Is it so hard to have it here when I get here? Suffering for the kingdom of God. (laughs) Or if you're a sound team, is it really so difficult to hold the mic towards your mouth? Is that, I mean... (laughs) Do you understand the difference between vertical and horizontal concepts? Are those, is that challenging for you? The cross has both. Can't you have both too? Is that a problem? Just so inconvenient. To serve the Lord. It's a we complain. Not so Jesus. Facing the cross, he serves. 
Sufferings, first lens. Watching Jesus. He serves when he suffers. What's another lens? Love. Notice there it says, the very verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It means to the uttermost. He fulfilled love to the end. He loved them to the, to the end. He was motivated by love. He loved his own. He loved them. He loved these disciples, these confused, often arrogant, slow to understand, including even Judas. He, he, he loves them. Servant is just motivated by love and affection. Sometimes I'll have the thought, or I have when I'm leading worship or, or coming up on stage, I just think, these are the people Jesus loves. If you think about that with the people around you, these are the people Jesus loves. He loves them. We watch Jesus, we're watching him just love people. Full of affection, tenderness, desire to do them good. He's motivated by love. His heart is full of love. His first motive is obedience to his father. His second motive is love to his people. He loves them. Third lens. Betrayal. I think it is completely intentional as all the order of Scripture is that John includes in verse 2 during supper, and then he shoves this in there, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's not an accidental, mis, you know, interrupted thought. He's, he's, he's inserting something here on purpose. Why? Because Jesus is serving not only in the face of suffering, not only motivated by love, but in the face of betrayal. And we have no indication that Jesus didn't wash Judas' feet too. How unlike me, I'm, I'm less motivated to serve by the perception of less interest on the part of another person. They didn't laugh at my joke. I'm not hanging with them. <laughs> they didn't appreciate that way I served last Sunday. They don't seem to ever bring up what I do well. I was talking about Joe, what a great player he is. What about me? We're, we're, we're reluctant to serve, even in these little perceived snubs, Perceived lack of attention. Jesus is facing actual betrayal unto death. He's not just facing those who we perceive to do wrong or even those who've actually done wrong. What about someone who's actually sinned against me, actually gossiped against me, actually slandered, maybe threw me under the bus? What about that person? How much do I want to serve them? No, this is, not, this is nowhere close to that. Jesus is sitting next to someone who will turn him over to people who will crucify him. What does he do? He washes his feet. And it's not just Judas. The gospel writers made it very clear that Jesus was aware all 12 are going to run away. They're all going to run away. Oh, sure, they'll claim, they'll claim loyalty, they'll claim affection, they'll claim confidence. But when the swords start flying and people start talking about crucifixion, what are they going to do? They're going to run away. 
There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. It's not these 12. (laughs) What does Jesus do? To those that he knows will run away, to the one he knows will take the money for his life. He notices his feet are dirty. No one's washed their feet. D.A. Carson says his act of humility is as unnecessary, assume that's because surely someone else could have done it, it's as unnecessary as it is stunning. It's simultaneously a display of love, a symbol of saving cleansing, and a model of Christian conduct. Andreas Kostenberger says the washing of feet was considered too demeaning for disciples or even a Jewish slave and thus assigned to non-Jewish slaves. Thus, Jesus' adoption of the stance of a non-Jewish slave would have been shocking to his disciples and called for an explanation. For although there are occasional exceptions featuring people other than non-Jewish slaves washing the feet of others, the washing of the feet of an inferior by a superior is not attested elsewhere in Jewish or Greco-Roman sources. You know what that means? Nobody has done this but Jesus. Nobody would even think to do this. Nobody could imagine someone doing this. No one could imagine the rabbi washing feet. You know what would be even more amazing? The rabbi washing the feet of his betrayer. We can often stop serving merely from the fear of betrayal, let alone the certain knowledge of it. If someone lets you down, watch Jesus. Wash Judas' feet. Just sit there with him and watch that. Watch him pour water over Jesus' feet that have trudged through animal-covered roads. Watch him pour the water. Watch him wipe down those feet of this betrayer. Watch until you marvel. Marvel until you worship. Worship until you want to serve. Fourth lens, authority. Verse 3 says that Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hands. He'd given all things into his hands. Jesus had authority. Jesus had the rulership of the nations. He had been designated by God, God's chosen ruler over all of mankind, the second head of God's humanity. All would be under the authority of Jesus. And Jesus already knew that the Father had given that authority, that title, that prestige into his hand. He knew in his heart that he was the rightful king of the world, right here. And being the rightful king of the world, the ruler of the world, the one in whom God has entrusted all of his plans for blessing and judgment, what does Jesus do? He takes the towel and washes feet. Now, the Bible is not opposed to authority. It's not opposed to leadership. Leadership is a gift given by God. The exercise of authority is a gift given by God. 
to humans, most namely the human who is also God, Jesus Christ, but also to others. Worship leadership is a gift to follow those who have skill in leading us in the praise of God. It's a wonderful gift we've all benefited from. And yet in the Bible, the privilege of authority is really just an invitation by the Lord to wash feet. Now, some foot washers are more public, some foot washers are less public. Both callings have their own temptations and difficulties to make those positions more about themselves than about the others. But if you've been given any kind of authority whatsoever, and in a certain level, if you're on the worship team, you have at least been given an example and a, a, a place in front of the church, a place of, of modeling worship, you've at least been given that an influence. Let's marvel at what Jesus does with it. What does he do? He washes feet. How unlike us. The higher we go in the ladder, the more demeaning it seems to us to do the lower rungs. I've experienced this. I've, I've experienced these thoughts come to my mind. You show up on a Sunday. There's something that needs to be done, but it's not really in keeping with your role. For a practical example, lots of times on Sunday mornings, the stage isn't always clean. People's got jackets and leftover Starbucks cups from two weeks ago, and last week's sheet music is there, and there's somebody's Kleenex and a jacket and crumbs from the youth ministry all over the stage, and, and it's, you know, it's like 25 minutes before the service is going to start. Practice is kind of getting close to over. What does a musician like me often do? Well, I need my green room time. And if I don't have a green room, I'll just go snag somebody's office or some back corner. And I'll sit and I'll think about the ways I'm going to serve in just a few moments. I think we apply this passage to that moment. You know what Jesus does? Hey, can I, where's the vacuum cleaner? I'll get your jacket, Joe. I'll get that cup. I'll take it. Yeah, but you're, you're just about to lead. No, I, I am leading. Well, are you saying picking up is more important than what you're about to do in leading? No. But there's no interruption. Authority is the invitation to wash feet. Look at Jesus. All authority. He's he's the master of heaven. Legions of angels at his command. He's the judge of demons. He's the sovereign king. He's the word through whom the universe remains in motion. You know what he's doing? He's, He's scrubbing off feet. How do we view authority? Fifth word, glory. It says there that he had come from God, glory in the past, and he was going back to God, glory in the future. He had come from God, glory in the past. He was going back to God, glory in the future. What's he doing in the present? He's washing feet. You know, sometimes in my own experience, I find that sometimes I have these past moments to look back to that seem really glorious. Sometimes that happens, and I think, sadly, particularly, I think this happens with men. 
They, they look back at these past moments and they just seem really glorious. That was a highlight. I was impressive then. <laughs> or maybe if you're younger, you look forward, you think, I'm going to be something great. I'm on my way. I'm making my journey. I, I have ambitions to do great things. And those future things seem glorious. You know what's remarkable about, about the human heart? The past sometimes can seem glorious. The future sometimes can seem glorious. When we actually get to where we are in the present, it always feels like washing feet. Doesn't it always feel like that to me? It always feels like, even if in the past, what I'm doing now would have seemed glorious. It would have seemed like that would be the pinnacle. By the time I actually get there and I'm doing it, I'm always looking at a new pinnacle. It always feels like washing feet. Jesus doesn't find glory in spite of his service. He finds glory in his service. He sees no contradiction in the fact that he came from heaven, he's going back to heaven, and right now he's washing feet. No heavenly contradiction anyway. How do you define glory? How do you define ambition? Do you define it of washing feet? When you're looking to the future moments of glory or contemplating, remembering the past moments of prestige, are you tempted to complain about the current moments of washing feet? How do you think about glory? Final word, dirt. Dirt. That's a nasty job, watching feet in that culture. That is, a, that is a nasty, nasty job. Roads are not clean. Animals are not clean. These guys walk everywhere. This is filthy, nasty work. They, they would put their feet away from the table, probably because of the smell. No desire to eat close to that. They would lean on their elbows. Their feet would be back from the table. So Jesus gets up and he goes back to where their feet are, back to the, the earthly part of this scene, the reality of the dirty, fallen, disgusting world, back there. That's where he goes. He goes back there, away from the head of the table, away from the table of fellowship. He goes away from there and back to this place where the dirt is, where the grime is, where the filth is. That's where he goes. And he says, I'll take that job. A job that they wouldn't give to Jewish slaves even. They give to non-Jewish slaves. Never would have heard of a superior doing this job. It's just, we don't really have a position quite like this in our culture anymore. Even, even hard-working, you know, physical labor kind of jobs, they're given a, a, appropriately a certain level of honor and prestige. Hard-working in, in that way in our culture, they don't, they don't have the same category. Maybe if we, if we lived you know, in, a, in a country that was a caste system, maybe we would understand this a little bit better. You imagine a person going up to volunteer at a public subway station and say, I, I, just, I, I want to be the one that, that, that cleans out these restrooms. I, 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 let me do that. Maybe we would catch a little bit of the shocking language here. He's taking on the dirt. He's taking on the dirt. I think this is why Peter, Peter reacts. He says, look... You're not going to wash my feet. No superior does this. This is messing with my worldview. You don't wash feet if you're a, you're a rabbi like you, a teacher like you, a lord like you don't wash feet. It's so humbling 
to have Jesus Christ wash your feet. You know what's more humbling? To have Jesus Christ die for your sins. He went there outside the camp, place of refuse. He was covered in the grime of sin. He was caked over with the filth of our rebellion. His blood flowed to wash over our grime. Jesus takes the worst job. You know, when we're talking about servanthood, sometimes it's easy to, to want to run to the, the practical command to serve, experience a little conviction, and we go home determined to do better. But I don't think that's the way to become a faithful servant. I think that creates temporary servants. I think we could, I could get up here and, and charge you, go be a servant, go serve at home, do all things the glory of God, go, 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 go. And temporarily it would produce some results. Tell you a few stories, tell you, you know, this is really what's cool about serving and it's good to be lowly and stuff. And you go home and, you know, for a few weeks the worship leader would just feel like he's coming to heaven or something. That, that's not going to create faithful servants. Faithful servants are created by encounters with Jesus. Faithful servants come from watching Jesus. They come from watching him. Letting the impact of who he is sink in. If you are at this moment in the passage thinking, I should go do that. You haven't watched long enough. I can't do that. Not faithfully. Not till I die. I can't view authority that way, glory that way, dirt that way, betrayal that way. I, I can't do it. I, not till I die. Maybe a little spurts here and there, but I, I can't do it. You can't do it. So what do we do? Verse 14 is there. As you've seen me do, you do. What do we do? How do we serve like Jesus? Well, we don't go from watching him to serving like him. We go from watching Jesus to remembering grace. Remember grace. How do you serve like Jesus? You remember grace. Look at verse 6. He comes to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not now understand, but after your word you will understand. See, Peter's question, I don't think is true humility. I think it's false humility. I think what he's really concerned about is that he sees Jesus beckoning from another world where superiors serve inferiors, where no position is immune from humble service. And that world is frightening to him. He's concerned. He doesn't mind serving Jesus because it keeps this world intact. And that's true of us as well. We don't mind serving people that we rightly acknowledge to have a certain level of prestige or honor. As long as the order is intact. There's people below us. There's people under us. 
What throws it into confusion is when Peter comes and he sees Jesus beckoning, beckoning sort of through the wardrobe into this new world, coming to this world where the king washes feet. And Peter says, do you wash my feet? Peter can perceive the implication of this. If the king washes feet, what do the slaves do? How much lower can you go than washing feet? Nowhere in this culture. So if the king washes feet, what do the slaves do? Grace is humbling. It is humbling to us. It humbles us that the king washed our sins. It's not flattering to us. Sometimes when we talk about servanthood, we can take a sort of an identity in our servanthood. I think that's why ultimately God put this interruption by Peter right in the middle of this passage. I think that's why it doesn't go directly from Jesus washed feet. And then he said, go thou and do likewise. I I think that's why we have this interruption. Because we have a tendency to assume we can do it. We have a tendency to think, I can take a certain identity, a certain prominence, a certain prestige. In fact, I serve the king of heaven. I am a worship leader. I am a pastor. I am a gifted musician. I am a sound person. I am an audiovisual person. I may serve in this other way in the church. No, no, no. Wait a second. If, if we're taking identity, first of all, from our service, then we've skipped over a very important section of our understanding of the gospel. Why? Because the most important aspect of our faithfulness to serve is our faithfulness to receive. Craig preached about this yesterday. The most important service that we offer to the Lord is as those who are trophies of grace. If, if my identity is found in the fact that I serve the king first, then subtly I begin to exalt my service above his sacrifice. Kingdom servants are first saved sinners before they are servants. This is the idea of the ransom language in the New Testament, the ransom language where a price is paid to bring a slave into the ownership of another master. That's the idea, is that we were under the ownership of Satan and sin and Jesus paid the price of his blood and because of that purchase price we are now owned by him we are his belonging all of our efforts and our our desires and our goals and our ambitions and even the things we produce they belong to him but between belonging to evil and belonging to Jesus there is this crucial aspect where a ransom was paid And that's ransom is the most important identity we can have. If you want to be a faithful servant, if you want to be faithful to serve in the end, make that ransom your identity. Remember grace. Remember grace. Remember it. Remember that Jesus washed your sins. Yes, it is humbling. It's humbling because we find ourselves saying to the Lord, if we are honest with ourselves, does the king die for my sins? Do you die for me? Like Peter, we can suffer confusion. Jesus says, this is beyond your comprehension. You'll understand in a little while. And and, boy, that was generous. Because even after the cross, do we 
understand? Do we understand? How you, my Lord, could die for me? I don't understand. Grace is humbling. Grace is incomprehensible to us. Grace is also permanent. You look down there, Peter has a change of heart because he realizes, okay, I have, I have a choice here. I can either find identity in this old world in which I find my place in the ladder. Some are better, but some are worse. Or I can find my identity with Jesus in this new world where the king washes feet The king dies for sinners. And if I find my identity there, I can see the implication coming. It's humbling. I'm not impressed with myself. Nobody else will be either. But if I go into that kingdom, then what I have is Jesus. I have a part of Jesus. I am one with him. That's what Jesus says to him. Unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. So he makes the choice, and he makes it emphatically, as Peter is wont to do. It's way this way, and then the Lord convicts him and changes all the way the other way. I love that about Peter. I love that Peter goes from denying the Lord to preaching at Pentecost. He doesn't feel sorry for himself for four or five decades. You know, we ought to be like that too. Can Jesus die for me? And at first we push away. I'm not that bad. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. We gotta be like Peter. In that case, Lord, you wash me to every part because I want all of you that you can give. If you want to be a faithful servant, if you want to serve like Jesus, what you have to do, what I have to do, we have to remember grace. Remember that Jesus died for your sins. Remember that he cleansed you with his blood. Remember that that grace is permanent. Once washed, always washed. Yes, there's foot washing. I think that's probably a reference to ongoing repentance and humility. But, but you're clean. Remember that you never move yourself out of this place where primarily you've been saved more than you serve. Salvation comes before service. You have to embrace the gospel before you're called to serve. You have to be identified by receiving grace before you identify yourself with serving God. When you get to heaven, your chief identity will not be servant of the Lord. It'll be sinners saved by grace. And when you serve on Sunday mornings, and it's Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, it's tempting. It is tempting, isn't it? To get in there and think, I am a, fill in the blank, servant. I lead. I sing. I play. I set up. I organize, right? We, we, we do these kinds of things. We, we fill in. This is my role, my job. I've talked to people when they first come into a church. And in their introductory comments, you know what they say? What I do is I play the piano. I'm always concerned a little bit because I don't think that should be your first introductory word about yourself. Even if you're fabulous, even if God has called you to play the piano, praise God. We need more piano players. There's not enough, too many guitar players in the world. 
You know, your introductory comments, you know, I'm, I'm amazed that Jesus saved me. Ask yourself the question, are you as a faithful servant primarily aware of being saved by grace? Is that your identity? Is that what's in your heart on Sunday mornings? Late practices, early rehearsal times, the millionth unraveled chord. One more time, the pastor wants to sing that same song that nobody else likes. (laughs) That all your friends beg you not to play again. Because it was on like Integrity 94. (laughs) And you've pleaded with him that they're just new albums. There's new albums. We've moved on from Deers and Water and we're just in a new era now. You know what makes you faithful to serve right then? Jesus Christ hung for me. I'll do whatever song you want. Remember grace. Finally, if you've done that, and only if. Pursue humility. Pursue humility. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. M. Just a quick point here. Sometimes we forget this aspect that they seem to understand better than us in our culture. We call Jesus Savior and Lord, Master, and He freely acknowledges, So I am. Coming to Jesus means surrendering to the Lord all of our rights, all of our preferences. When we're purchased by that blood, we're purchased in full. All of our guilt and all of our rights are given to him. One commentator says, uh, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Apostle Paul, he says, Paul is so free in Christ, he's free even from his emancipation. Sometimes when we, we think about our freedom in Christ, we can, we can talk about what we're, we're, we're free to do. But in the New Testament, freedom from slavery in sin is replaced by freedom to slavery of God. All of my rights, my perspectives, my calling is in the hands of the Lord. Now, amazingly, it's in the hands of a Lord who washes feet. We should freely acknowledge like them, yes, Lord, 
You are right. You are the Kyrios. You are the Lord. You are deity in human flesh. All that I am belongs to you. I would encourage you, as you're thinking about being a worship team member or a pastor, take some time personally and declare this, that he's saying that they believe about him and that we believe about him. You are Lord. We're not always comfortable with the slave language of the New Testament because of our cultural backgrounds. And yet, it is there. And what that means is we don't just offer our service to the Lord. It means he owns us. We belong to him. My past, my future, my present, it belongs to him. His plans supersede any plans I've ever had. His purposes for me, all of it belongs to him. He's my Lord. He's my teacher. My definition of life comes from him. My calling in life comes from him. His purpose for me, whether seen or unseen, come from him. Now what does that Lord tell us to do towards one another? If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This admission leads them to a sort of a a double humility. There's the humility of acknowledging that someone else is the owner of their life. And then there's the humility of saying that that owner has already lowered himself as low as he possibly can go. There's this double humility in being a Christian. I belong to Jesus and Jesus serves everybody. I belong to Jesus and Jesus lays his own glory down. I I, I belong to Jesus and Jesus gives up all of his own rights to serve other people, even his enemies. I belong to Jesus and where Jesus is, is serving the lowly to despise the sinners. So if I want to be Jesus' servant, somehow I have to be lower than the one who is serving the lowly despising the sinners. What does that mean? It just means you run towards humility every chance you get. I mean, you're never going to run low enough. But if we want to see Jesus magnified in our lives, that's where we run. That's where we run. Because a servant is not greater than his master. A servant is not greater than his master. (laughs) Listen to the paradox here. Jesus is saying, I have washed feet, but it is still the case that I am greater than you. It's not as though Jesus is actually lower than us. He doesn't actually say, I'm less worthy than you. That's why I'm serving. I'm not as worthy. No, no. I'm that worthy and I'm serving feet. I'm still greater than you. Where do you go? Here's what this means. The harder we run towards humility, the more magnified we're showing Jesus to be. The more humble you are, the more magnified Jesus is in your life. What does it mean to serve? It it really just means humility in action. Humility in action. If you ever have a thought, I shouldn't have to do that, argue with it based on John 13. I shouldn't have to love him. 
I shouldn't have to forgive him. I shouldn't have to embrace him. I shouldn't have to do that with her. I shouldn't have to serve in that way. I shouldn't have to be only on the schedule once every other month. I shouldn't have to be on the schedule every week. I shouldn't have to serve in the early service. I shouldn't have to serve in the late service. I shouldn't have to serve with this band. They're the B band. I shouldn't have to serve with this band. They're the weird musical style band. I shouldn't have to serve with that drummer. He can't keep time. I shouldn't have to serve with that guitarist. He can't keep rhythm. I shouldn't have to serve with that keyboardist. He's always talking about his glory days in the marching arena when he was playing the xylophone. argue with that from John 13. Your job, if if you want to be a worshiper of the Lord Jesus, if you want to be faithful to serve, run towards humility. Run towards it. Pursue humility. Pursue it when you're suffering. Pursue it motivated by love. Pursue it even in the face of betrayal. Pursue it when you're given greater positions of authority or influence. Pursue it when there's a certain glory attached in the past or in the future that you're not receiving right now. Pursue it when there's dirt to be done. What if pastors said to worship leaders, I don't really understand music, but I will gladly talk music with you if it'll make your job easier. What if worship leaders said to pastors, I don't really understand why you like that song, but I will gladly learn it if you think it will help the church. What if team members said to worship leaders, I would prefer to serve in a different way, but I will gladly fill the spots you need if it will be a blessing to the team. What if musicians said to sound team members, I don't understand sound like you do, but how can I change my schedule or my practices to serve you? If we do this, what we're admitting, according to verse 16, is I am not greater than Jesus. The lower we go in service, the higher we lift Jesus in praise. D.A. Carson wrote a book about his father. His name was Tom. He called it The Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. It might have been The Memoirs of an Ordinary Minister of Music, Ordinary Musician, Just talking about a Christian trying to be faithful to his role. Describing the end of his life, to close, he said this. Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful But he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator. Good news for most musicians I know. But there is no text that says by this, all men shall know you are my disciples if you are good administrators. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital. No editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on the television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, faintly venting, because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side... On the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters. 
Not because he was a good man or a great man or a great servant. He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor. But because he was a forgiven man, a washed man, and he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear, saying, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray.